0: Well, it is good to be back with you today. We're continuing a series titled, Come and See. We've been walking through the Gospel of John, and this phrase keeps popping up. This phrase, come and see. We hear our Savior saying it. We hear people saying it to Him. We hear people saying it to others, to come and see the Savior. And so we have been walking through John's Gospel And have been looking at that because we realize that everybody is seeking something. Every one of you is seeking something. And everyone you encounter is seeking something. And sometimes we're seeking multiple things. And sometimes we're not quite sure what we're seeking. Other times we know exactly what we're after. And we find over and over in the Gospel of John an invitation. An invitation to come and to see. It's an invitation to us and it's an invitation that we can then extend to others as well. To come and see so last week we looked at the story of a man born blind in John chapter 9, someone who literally could not see. He was physically blind. He was physically incapable of sight. But parallel to him, parallel to his physical blindness, we encountered the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders who refused to see spiritually, to refuse to see the Messiah, the chosen one of Israel that was there in their midst, And we made application to that in sort of an analogy that several people have commented on uh, to me, uh, this difference between being a hummingbird and a vulture, right? That hummingbirds look for the best, they draw out the sweet things, they spend their time floating around with the flowers, and we can all think of a hummingbird or two in our lives. But there's also vultures, aren't there? And vultures fly high and they have very good eyesight and they can find anything that is dead and nasty and disgusting and they can go bury their heads in it. And so the question was, which do you want to be? Do you want to to find the best and draw the best out of others and out of various situations that we encounter in life? Or do you want to just kind of dig in on what's not right, what's not good? And there was this interplay between physical and spiritual blindness and and what you look for you will find was our bottom line that if you look for the best if you look for reasons to have faith if you look for reasons to believe that Jesus is the son of God that there is victory in his name then you will find them and if you look for reasons to believe that it's not true you can find those too that's where faith comes in That's where the choice to believe. In this chapter that we're going to look at today, and the story that we're going to look at today, belief plays a central role. And so it's almost as if it just set itself up perfectly. We're going to fast forward uh, past chapter 10 into chapter 11 and spend our time in John chapter 11 today. And our message today is titled, Letting Jesus Come and See Your Mess. Letting Jesus Come and See Your Mess. To give you a little bit of the context, if you've been reading along in the Gospel of John, I, I commend you for that. Doing some personal devotion or personal study in there as we walk through this, uh, this Gospel, you can walk through it as well in your times with, that you spend with, with the Lord and with His Word. But in John chapter 10, Jesus declares that He is the Good Shepherd, that He is the Good Shepherd and that He is the Gate so he's beginning to, to become even more focused and even more restrictive. That he says in John chapter 10, I am the gate. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's the way to the Father. And he is the good shepherd, forecasting or foreshadowing that he will lay down his life for the sheep. He contrasts the enemy who comes to lie and steal and destroy with the good shepherd who comes and lays down his life to give us the abundant life, the rich and satisfying life that he died for us to have. And so that kind of catches us up into John chapter 11 because the unbelief of some in John chapter 10 leads to the belief of many as Jesus declares who he is and what he has come to do. In John chapter 11, we find the the last and the the final, the seventh miracle that John records in his gospel. John's gospel is set up and structured uh, very intentionally, and there are seven miracles miracle, seven being the number of perfection in the Hebrew culture, that there are seven miracles. This is the last of those seven miracles that we're going to look at today. It's the final miracle in the Gospel of John, not the final miracle in all the Gospels, if you put them all next to each other, but in John's Gospel, as he presents the case that Jesus is the Messiah, this is the last and final, and it's interesting that it deals with the subject of death. It deals with the resurrection of the dead. And so it's interesting to me that the final miracle that John chooses to record is the miracle that shows that Jesus has power even over death. Because as Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen nineteen, you don't need to turn there, it's on the screen behind me, that death is the final enemy. And he says it this way, he says, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most miserable. You see, if Jesus can do everything just in this life, but has no power over death, has no power to raise the dead, has no power to bring resurrection life where there is only death and darkness, then then our hope comes to an end. But if Jesus is powerful over death, if he controls and commands death and has power over it to stand against it, to stand apart from it, and to invite us into that, then we have hope for eternity. You see how important this is? We cannot minimize this this miracle that we're going to read today. And so we're going to start in verse 17 of John chapter 11. That's on page 1668 in the Pew Bible, or you can turn there. It's a lengthy chunk of Scripture that we're going to read. I'll set the context for the first 16 verses. Basically, Lazarus is a friend of Jesus. He has two sisters, Mary and Martha. Lazarus has become very sick. And they send word to him, thinking he'll rush down there, or maybe say the word from where he is that will make Lazarus well. But he, he, he delays his going, and the disciples are curious about this, and then he finally decides to go a few days later, and, and they try to talk him out of going. It's kind of one of these strange conversations that we get in Scripture because he's, he's going to a place that's just a few miles from Jerusalem, and there's a lot of people in Jerusalem that want to kill Jesus. So they have a point. But he, 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 we get this little interplay, and then in verse 17, we pick up the story here, and we get to see the mess that Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, have on their hands. And we get to see Jesus interact with them with that. So picking up verse 17, On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. "'Lord,' Martha said to Jesus, "'if you had been here, my brother would not have died.' But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she told him. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. Now, if you were here last week, does this remind you of the interaction he has with the blind man after he restores his sight? And he says, you know, who is the Son of God? And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, and even now you have seen him. Do you believe this? There's that question again, do you believe? And the answer again is the affirmative, yes, Lord, I believe, she told him. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside hummingbirds and vultures all the time, aren't there? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, Martha, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been in there four days. They've got a big mess, don't they? Then Jesus said, did I not tell you That if you believed, you would see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Now, if you've heard this story before, if you've heard it several times, we're at risk of the familiarity diminishing what we have just heard, what we have just read. Imagine yourself in that place, in that setting. Imagine yourself witnessing this where you've never read John chapter 11, where you've never seen it on a flannel graph, where you've never heard the story. This is unbelievable stuff, right? Which is why belief is such a central word in this chapter. You heard it several times, and if I'd read the whole chapter, you would hear the word belief or believe or believing eight times just in this one chapter, and it points out the difference between believing in God and believing God. And there is a huge difference. One gives intellectual assent to God, to the reality or the existence of God, believing in God. The other believes God, takes him at his word, believes that he is who he said he is, that he is doing what he said he is doing. And when we look at that word, belief, it's a Greek word. The word in the Greek language is "pistuyo." And I tell you that because if there were a handful of Greek words that you were going to learn and understand and learn to recognize when you see them represented in Scripture or do a little word study on them, pistuyo is one that should make your list. Pistuyo is the word that we translate as belief or as faith. It means more than just agreeing mentally or giving intellectual assent to. It means that you've been persuaded beyond doubt, that you have put your confidence in, that you are choosing to rely upon, cling to, and trust in. So when he talks about, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? And he asks Martha that question. He's saying, are you willing to stake your eternity on it? Not just to give an intellectual assent to it, but to believe in it, to rely upon it, to trust in it, to cling to it as your hope in this life and in the next and so it 's a very significant word it 's a very significant theme that we see, and we see it playing out another thing that 's significant that that would be easy to read over, but the, the we should pay attention to is that four days comes up a couple of times, right at the beginning of the passage in verse 17, and then Martha reminds Jesus of this as if he didn't know that, uh, that Lazarus has been in there for four days. Four days is significant because four days signaled to the audience, it signaled to the people there, it signaled to those that would read this afterwards that it wasn't just that Lazarus had fallen asleep into a, into a little coma or something like that. Without IV, without uh, the medical technology that we have today— You were done in in two or three days. There was no way to sustain life in some sort of a coma or something like that. So medically, this was significant in that it wasn't just a trance or a coma or something like that. This was a person who was literally dead and decaying, and decay had started to take place. And that's significant because it illustrates also in this passage, in this story, it illustrates that God does not always answer our prayers the way we want them to, does he? And you hear the same statement from both Mary and Martha. Lord, if you had been here, if you had been here, this would not have happened. If you had been here, what we prayed for would have happened. We prayed that you would come and that you would fix all of it, that everything would be okay, that Lazarus would survive. And I think that might be why Jesus weeps, because twice he's confronted with their pain, that if you'd been here, it wouldn't have happened. They have faith. They believe in his power. They believe in his ability. But God did not answer their questions the way They wanted him to. And this is a reality of our lives today, that oftentimes we pray for things and we do not receive them in the way that we had prayed for them. We pray for someone to get well, and they don't. We pray for something to happen, a job or a a relocation or a relationship to improve, and it doesn't. And we have to believe and we have to trust, as the subject of this chapter makes clear, that even when God doesn't answer our prayers in the way that we had hoped, in the way that we had prayed, that he knows what he's doing, that we can believe him and believe that he is good and put our faith and our hope in the reality of God's goodness rather than our circumstances and how they may or may not change. And this is a very important lesson for us. And so I want to make mention of a prayer meeting that will be taking place next week at 9.30 in the chapel. We do this monthly on the second Sunday. It's open to everyone. We'd love for you to come and we pray. We pray. We lift up the needs of those in our church and those that are related to our church and we gather together in His name and we pray. And we're looking at ways to create additional opportunities for people to come and to pray together. I also want to mention real quickly, there's, there's a conversation with Pastor Mark in your bulletin. And it's coming up in two weeks, Sunday night on October 21st at 6.30 down in the Youth Center. We'd love for you to come. We check the schedule. The Vikings play early that day, so you really don't have anything else to do. And uh, it's going to be a wonderful time. I want to share some things that uh, the LBA and I have been working on and and, and really creating some language and, and some priorities and some goals and some mission and vision for where we see this church going into the future. And I want you to come, and I want you to hear it, and I want you to have questions answered, and then if you have other questions too, uh, we can answer those as well. So that's coming up in a couple of weeks down in the youth center. Make sure it's on your calendar. We'd love to see you down there. I also want to point out a couple of verses here and look into them a little bit more closely. In verse 25 through 27 is really key interchange that takes place between Jesus and Martha. And it's where he declares that he is the resurrection and the life. And if you read the verses just before that, you see that Martha's saying, yes, I believe that the resurrection will take place. I believe that Lazarus will be resurrected at some point in the future. And Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this. He's given her an opportunity to believe right now, as he has declared, that if you believe, you will live and not die. And she's giving giving her the opportunity, and she responds in the affirmative, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world. And it's interesting, he says, I am, not I will be, I am. I am in is this language that God gives to himself clear back with Moses at the burning bush. I am that I am. I am eternal. I was, I am, and I am to come. And when he does that, he says, no, you don't have to just wait for the resurrection at some point in the future. The resurrection is here. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is now. I who stand before you am the resurrection and the life. And this is good news because it means that, that, that the hope is not just there and then. The hope is here and now. The hope that we have in Jesus is here and now. He comes to us and when he comes to us and when he walks into the room and he walks into our situation and he walks into the mess that we've made of our lives or the mess that life has handed us, he comes in as the resurrection and the life in that moment, not just in some future moment, but he brings resurrection power into everything that he does. And so the good news is you don't have to wait until you die to start eternal life. Now it sounds pretty obvious, right? Like eternal life isn't something that happens after you die. But I I interact with a lot of believers and I interact with a lot of people who are kind of like, I just can't wait until this life is over so I can start my eternal life. And I don't see that in here. I see the good news that, that we initiate eternal life when Jesus Christ comes into our lives and he changes our eternal destiny. I'm not planning on dying. I don't know about the rest of you, but I believe that the good news is that I will never die. My body will fall asleep, but my spirit is eternal because Jesus has intersected my spirit. And he has come with the resurrection and the life into my life, and I'm not planning on checking out. And you shouldn't either because you don't have to die to start your eternal life. You don't have to wait until you die to start living forever. The new life is, has begun. Do you live like an eternal being today? Do you live like you're going to live forever? Another passage that I think is really significant, and it fits with our theme, but I want to look at it even if it didn't, is verse 34 and 35 in this, this last little interchange between Jesus and and Mary. She's just told him once again, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. And that's when we're told that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And he asked the question, where have you laid him? Come and see, Lord. They replied. And Jesus wept. Now I believe anytime Jesus asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer. I believe Jesus knew exactly where he was. But he was giving them an opportunity to invite him to their mess. And that's why I've titled this message taking Jesus to see your mess. Sometimes we kind of want to keep our mess behind closed doors, don't we? And and in our interactions with others, sometimes we want to we want to, you know, deal with the surface level stuff, but we don't want to go deep. Let's keep it up here with news weather and sports or yeah, you can pray for this relative, but I don't want to tell you what's really going on in my life. Jesus says, "What's going on? Where is he?" And they say, Come and see. And they take him. They take him to the place where he was, where Lazarus had been left. And, I, and, and we're told in verse 35, Jesus wept. And it's the shortest scripture in all the Bible. It's two words. So if you have really wanted to branch out and start memorizing scripture, John eleven thirty five is a great place to start. Jesus wept. You could, you could memorize scripture today, and you could remember that going forward. But it's significant that Jesus wept. It's significant because he weeps. He weeps as a human. He weeps as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He weeps as a friend. He weeps for Lazarus. He weeps for this, this man that he had done life with, that he had grown close to, that he loved. And he weeps with Mary and Martha. He empathizes with them. He feels what they feel. He doesn't just pat them on the head, and offer them some sympathy, he weeps with them. He chooses to feel what they feel. And it's interesting, in, in the Greek language, we're told that Jesus wept, the word wept there is, is a silent, a silent weeping with tears, contrasted by those who had come from Jerusalem to weep with Mary and Martha those were wailers those were people who were who were coming to wail with someone to weep loudly and to wail and this was going on and going on and going on and then Jesus contrasts that by weeping silently weeping quietly with them and when the command is given to roll away the stone i just this this just makes me almost smile, because she brings him to the mass. She brings Jesus to the mass, and he says, he's, he's about to do the miracle, right? He's about to do the miracle, and he says, roll away the stone. And she says, but Lord, don't, don't do it. He's been in there four days. Decaying is taking place. There's a bad odor, is the way our translation. Did anybody have a King James Version with you today? In the King James Version of this, she says, but Lord, he stinketh. <laughs> he stinketh. And it shows that, yeah, I believe you're the resurrection and the life, Lord, but if you roll that stone back, it's going to smell bad. You don't want to do that. We've got all these people here. We don't want to do that. And it, it strikes me as funny because, but Lord, every time I see that in Scripture, it doesn't turn out real well for the person that said it. it it's always like, I'm about to do this great, amazing thing, Jesus or God says. And some human says, but Lord, don't, don't do it yet. Don't do it like this. Don't do it. Do you ever do that? Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm the only one that says, but Lord, every now and then. And I feel like something is happening or something's about to take place and I poke my head, but Lord, like I'm going to inform him of something that he doesn't already know. And yet he calls Lazarus forth. And they're they're dumbfounded. You can tell they're dumbfounded because in verse 44, he says, take off the grave clothes. Come on. I mean, he's alive. He is alive. Stop standing there, staring with your mouth open. Take off the grave clothes so that he can continue. And we find out in the next chapter that he goes back into Jerusalem. Like, he is fully alive. He was fully dead, fully decaying, fully stinking, and now he is fully alive. The miracle has taken place. In verse 45, we didn't read it, but verse 45 says that many put their faith in him. Many put their faith in Jesus because of this miracle. So many, in fact, that in chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, we read that the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus, for on account of him, many Jews were coming over and putting their faith in Jesus. Like, he's so alive that people are believing in him and believing in Jesus and giving their, putting their faith in him and... The scribes and Pharisees just don't know what to do. They see a problem. They don't see a miracle. They see an issue that they have to deal with. They don't see something to rejoice in and to give praise to God to. So we see them continuing in that. Now, our bottom line today is sort of the, the way I sum up the whole thing. That when you bring Jesus to your mess, he can turn your mess into a miracle. Jesus can turn your mess into a miracle, whatever it is. Now, when I say that, I'm thinking big picture and I'm thinking of the mess that my life was apart from Christ and the mess that every part of my life that I kept away from him was. But when Jesus entered that mess, he did a miracle. He did a miracle in my life. He, he changed me from, from being dead and dying and spending eternity apart from him to being alive, to experiencing his resurrection power, and to have an eternity with him. So I want to try to connect the dots here because Jesus can turn your mess into a miracle and then you can turn his miracle into a message. He can turn your mess into a miracle and you can turn that miracle into a message, into your personal testimony as you go and tell what you have seen and heard, what Jesus has done for you. So in connecting the dots with our personal salvation, knowing that many of you will hear this and will think about your salvation story. Some of you are here because you're curious or you're even convinced that Jesus is the Christ, but you've never made a commitment. You've never invited the resurrection and the life to take up residence in your life, in your heart. And so I want to connect the dots for you here just briefly. Before I do that, I want to make sure everybody relieves. Understands. I believe that Lazarus was literally dead and Jesus literally raised him from the death. Every now and then when you make parallels or analogies, people think, oh, so it was just a parable or it was just a, an, an analogy. No, there are spiritual implications to this that intersect our lives here and now today. But this is an event that literally happened. And we, apart from Christ, before Christ enters the picture in our lives, we are spiritually dead, and spiritually decaying. We have a mess. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2.1, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Every single one of us at one time was or currently is dead in our sins and our trespasses, our transgressions. But, and here's the good news of the gospel, Jesus can turn your mess into a miracle. So that's the first step. We have a mess. The second step is that Jesus calls us to come forth and raises us to life. So we were spiritually dead and decaying, and now we are brought to life, raised to life. Just like the song that we just sang, the resurrected King is resurrecting me. The resurrected King calls life. ...into us and calls us into a relationship with him. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 says it this way. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. So the biggest mess, the mess that deals with our eternal salvation, our eternal destiny, the biggest mess intersects with the biggest miracle that jesus could have done on our behalf he offers us eternal life eternal salvation he offers us a place at the table a place in his eternal kingdom this is good news every other mess that we deal with in life is secondary to this mess that jesus has taken care of for us that gives us hope that gives us hope and that makes our lives fertile soil for the next miracle in the next secondary mess in our lives, whether that's a health concern or that's somebody, a relationship or that's financial troubles. It makes our lives fertile soil for his miracles to take place. Third, Jesus removes the grave clothes that bind us, just like he had them remove the grave clothes that bound Lazarus. And this is holiness. This is, this is where he comes into our lives and empowers us. As Second Peter 1.3 says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We have everything we need to live for him. We're not bound by anything any longer. He has declared that those, those things that bind us be taken away. Just like the song, by your spirit I will rise from the ashes of defeat. The things that used to defeat us and keep us down no longer have power over us because Jesus' power is greater. And therefore we, in the fourth step, we join his redemption, redemptive mission, and others come to believe in him too. That's the message. So you have a mess. You have a miracle. You have the holiness of God come into our lives, and then you have a message. You have an opportunity to share. You have an opportunity to tell what has happened in your lives. At your name, I come alive to declare your victory, to declare it, to declare it to anyone who will listen. At his name, we come alive. At his name, we come to declare his victory second corinthians five seventeen through twenty one says it this way: therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. the old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Gospel in a nutshell. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is good news. This is good news. And the the story that we've just read illustrates it beautifully, illustrates it in concrete language, what happened in our hearts and in our lives spiritually if we are in Christ. And it tells us what's available to us if we are not. So if you're here today and you're curious or you're even convinced that Jesus is who he said he is and he did what he said he would do, but you're not committed to him, you haven't invited him into your life, then today can be the day of your salvation, October 7th. 2018 can be the day that somebody steps into the kingdom of God and says, Jesus, here's my miracle. Come and, or here's my mess. Come and see my mess. Do a miracle within me. Bring me into your kingdom. Bring me into the family of God, into salvation, into eternal hope, into your presence forever. Today can be the day. And if your day was many days ago and you are here today rejoicing in that reality, then you have the hope that is beyond anything that this world has to offer. You have hope in the eternity that God has offered you through Jesus Christ. You can rejoice in that and you can tell everyone. Wherever you are, whoever you are, you have a response. You have an opportunity to respond to God in faith today. You have an opportunity to invite Him into your life. You have an opportunity to go and tell everyone what he has done in you and for you. My hope is that every single person that's here today will respond in faith in some way, respond in faith to God's word. Whether that means coming forward and kneeling at an altar or sitting on one of the altar benches or staying where you're seated or just worshiping quietly as we, as we transition into a time of response, I hope you'll respond in faith. And if you come to these two, somebody will come and, uh, I'm sorry, these two, somebody will, will leave you alone and let you pray right here. And if you go to the outside ones, Somebody will come and put a hand on your shoulder and pray with you and pray for you. Whatever you choose to do in these next few moments, don't leave this place unchained, unchanged. Leave this place with hope. Leave this place with confidence in the goodness of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you can turn our biggest mess into a miracle. We thank you that, that you invite us to join you in letting the world know that their mess is fertile soil for your miracles to be at work. We thank you for the hope that we have that whatever this life throws at us, Lord, we can transcend that. That the end is not the end. That we don't die someday and then eternal life begins, but if we are in Christ, eternal life has come. We can experience it here and now. We can experience hope, eternal hope, here and now. And that you have given us everything we need to live godly lives, to be set apart for you, and to join you on your redemptive mission in this world. Have your way in these next few moments, we pray. It's in Jesus' name.